So normally it is my job to have something to say at all when we start. But because we have a guest, I really feel like it's within my power to be like, Harry, be funny. Like, let's go. Let's start from the top. <laughs> no, you can't just make demands like that. Just be Cruelty held a comedy hostage over here. Come on now. <laughs> You're ours now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very vampiric thing of you to say, Rowan. Um <laughs> I know, I know oh, you're no. Twitch's new new favorite vampire. Um, I, I learned about this exactly two minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, don't say that. The actual vampires on the internet will come for me. Like the LA by night people whom I love. The <laughs> people who properly play. You're definitely not associated with. You definitely have no connection with. The groups that definitely are going to come for you because you're not part of them it's like goth culture where they're like well do you know all the goth music that's ever been made i'm like no i'm just sitting here wearing black (laughs) (laughs) well like you dear podcast listeners, you may not be able to see it but i have further evidence that rowan is likely a vampire of some sort um i I, i'm staring at them in a messenger call right now and Mm -hmm. and tracy's just in 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 a home setting um but rowan is in a closet surrounded by vampire cloaks um, to her right and to her left. Um, and so I am led to believe, led to believe um, that she's, since she's California dreaming, she cannot stream in the, in her window area because light would come in. Harry, we're oh, currently yeah, yeah, yeah. in a fight. We're fighting right now. You and I are fighting. <laughs> Rowan, I particularly like the, the full skeleton you have in the corner next to your vampire cloaks. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't don't mind that. It'll it'll only be there until uh, the next full moon. It's no big deal. <laughs> Who has dry ice in their shoe rack? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the fun of this is that both Harry and Tracy have proper recording setups. Harry has his beautiful logo behind him. Tracy has her Yeti caster all up in her face. I am in a closet surrounded by soundproofing foam trying to convince Los Angeles to shut the heck up so that I can record a podcast. <laughs> for you, it is a proper setup. For a vampire, it mm-hmm. is the proper setup for a vampire. So, you know. <laughs> When Rowan and I started this podcast, I was recording from that closet right behind me with a teeny tiny cheap microphone inside of an old Amazon box stuffed with towels. Humble beginnings, baby. I could only go up from there. Oh, no. (laughs) This stream brought to you by Jeff Bezos. Please don't take my box, Jeff. No, that box was all I had. Oh my god, it's so true, and you would be so stressed out about it, and I would just go, you know, it's okay, it's no big deal, and then the blanket fort would fall down in the middle of us recording. (laughs) Yeah, I had a duvet pinned around me. Well, it's one of those things, too, where I've always told people that this stream is outside of the box, uh, or this podcast is outside of the box, only to find out it was made inside of a box, and I was (laughs) wrong the entire time. All the way through, wrong completely. (laughs) From start to finish. We started from the bottom. Now we're here. Now we have a fancy guest. That is Harry Horror. Fancy guest? What are you talking about? He is on our podcast. Uh, That is Tracy Harrison. She is 
canonically part of this podcast. She can't leave. Um, and I am Rowan Hall. You robbed me of the chance to get to introduce you. No, I'm doing it. And that is Rowan Hall. She's the vampire of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) You love it and you know it. (laughs) I love it. I love to hate it. Mm -hmm. Ah, please stop calling me a vampire. Yeah, stop. Ah, Please. Don't do that. No. (laughs) We love to see it. (laughs) We get it. You're goth. We get it. You're goth. You're here. This is the Willing and Fable podcast where we bring you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. (laughs) And if you would like to support us, remember, you can leave us a review. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Check out the merch on our website, which is willingandfable.com. Or just keep listening to these episodes because we love to have you here. Blood donations. (laughs) Also accepted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you do love a blood oath you you have more than once stated that we you love a good blood oath love a blood oath and i'm gonna say harry introduce yourself swear your fealty let's go <laughs> sure um i'm my name is harry from the harry horror show a live streaming uh true crime conspiracy theory debunking and paranormal exploring live broadcast weeknights at 9 p.m eastern 6 p.m pacific i can add to my resume i am totally human with arguably some of the tastiest blood on the eastern seaboard i can say that knowing you're a full coast away spicy and Mm -hmm. bold challenge it's more of like a mild – I would say if there was any sort of spice, it would be more of like a thyme or an oregano. Mm. Um, with a little tasting to it there. Uh, so, Harry, I'll be uh, I'll be running by your ha- place around uh, 8 p.m. tonight. Don't worry about it. <laughs> if I wake up, like, you're tied up with like an apple in my mouth, I'm not going to be surprised. I'm just going to be like, oh, I'm getting closet. <laughs> Do you prefer Honeycrisp or Gala? The people need to know. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Granny Smith all the way. Whoa, no. For just no. straight eating? Yeah, live dangerously. Right. Good good news, Rowan. You're not the monster of the podcast anymore. It's <laughs> Harry. That's the true monstrosity. <laughs> How dare you, sir? My hamster that I have only eats, the, only eats the, the little red delicious apples, but I eat the Granny Smiths. Both of those are wrong. First of all... Feed your hamster quality food. It's honey crisp or nothing. Secondly, you deserve better than Granny Smith. That is a baking apple. It's a perfect apple for making apple pie because you add so much sugar to it. <laughs> to be fair, I also take my coffee entirely black with no cream, no sugar, nothing. We, we get, get it, Harry, you're goth. <laughs> <laughs> known each other too long this is where we call it quit <laughs> oh this is the peak we've reached the we've reached oh the my mountain. god you guys i'm literally crying i'm gonna ask you one other <laughs> question harry um because it's really important to me that the listeners know this tracy before we logged on was asking harry do you ever accidentally write harry hori <sighs> my hands want it <laughs> So it's never happened to me. I do get Harry the Horror Show. Like, <laughs> like the audience is actively afraid of me at any given time. 
<laughs> it's just not ideal. Um, that's the one I get almost all this. Oh, Harry, Harry the Horror Show. <laughs> Please uh, don't take me. It's, it's just, it's, I don't know why. I don't know what they, maybe they think about my self-esteem. Um, mm-hmm, that's it. I gotta, I, you know, I'm okay with myself. I'm not, I'm not going to be calling myself a horror show. Maybe I come across with that vibe. That goth, straight black coffee, um, hiding behind my hiding behind my own my own shadow there vibe. That's the energy. <laughs> we okay. We have to explain this joke. One of my friends was teasing another friend and said, "We get it, you're goth." And truly, it was hilarious. But also, there was that instantaneous moment of like, "Well, now we have to embrace this phrase. Mm-hmm. There's no other option." <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I told Tracy, and I would say we say it about once a day, twice a conversation, three oh, yeah. times a text exchange. <laughs> because both of us are just so that, where we're like unironically texting each other about a new skull we saw that we're excited about. <laughs> I get it. You're goth. <laughs> I, I literally was in Tampa recently moving some stuff around for a friend, and there is a store there um, that sells um, little skeletons, little creatures, I and I was low key like shopping <sighs> for my set in that store. And then, it, and that was now I realize I get it. I'm goth. You're just your goth. Your emo phase transitioned into goth. I'm just like a khaki wearing, um, just dad bod schlepping goth. Here's the thing. I'm a, I'm a goth on the inside. This is a hot take, and the internet can come for me if they want to. But being goth. It's not about khakis or no khakis. It's about a frame of mind. <laughs> it's a mindset. <laughs> it's got the clock somewhere. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. I'm just going to say that I uh, genuinely started crying about how much I love bats just the other day. So I think goth is a mindset. <laughs> For all of our, our listeners in the Florida area, go visit Gainesville if you're as crazy for bats as Tracy is. Because they have so the University of Florida has three gigantic <gasps> bat houses. And every night the bats fly out like Batman begins. What? And they're they're just they're like a huge stream of like bat swarm. What? That's really cool. Okay, well, we're just going to add that to our tour of America. We've got Mothman, mm-hmm. we've got Salem, we've got the bat houses, we've got yeah. Squonk. The California. Um... Oh, Winchester Mystery House, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much haunted America I want to see. You can come on our tour of the country if you want to, Harry. It's going to be exciting. Mm-hmm. There's going to be snacks. There's going to be sarcasm. It's going to be great. I need to like re- I, I need to create new jokes to my viewers because right now we've talked about getting like a, a Harry Horror Show like con when oh. when the pandemic is mm-hmm. over we could all return back to normal and because all of our inside jokes involve very lame locations the current proposed visit is Ohio and held in a Denny's because we're obsessed with Denny's oh my I don't God. I can't tell you how many times Denny's comes up in true crime Denny's really is haunted every location mm-hmm. I can never hate Denny's because they have supported me through many a late night fourth meal, and truly, their gluten free English muffin is life alteringly good. Keep in mind, it's gluten free, so my standards are low. But <laughs> Denny's really met those standards. <laughs> Wish everyone gives it five. Hello, governors, out of five. <laughs> you know, Denny's is not the sponsor of this podcast, despite what you may think. 
the Goth Association of America. God, I hope that's not real. Not the sponsor of this podcast, despite what you might think. In fact, we do. We have an actual sponsor of this podcast for the springtime. Our sponsor is Greenleaf Geek, which is an amazing company. And they, as you know, sent us a treasure trove of dice and Rowan. I believe you have a a collection of dice you'd like to describe for our audience. I'm really upset right now. I picked this set of dice to discuss, and then you guys came at me for the vampire thing. And uh, yep, 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 yep. I was waiting for it. <laughs> you better stay on script, ma'am. So I'm gonna stay on script, guys. I'm gonna give you exactly what I wrote originally. <laughs> so Greenleaf Geek sent me the gunmetal red metallic swirl set which makes my spooky little heart so happy they're this mix of translucent red and this deep opaque silver and and i quote myself they just really hit that vampy dark tough beautiful place oh my god i want to die but (laughs) right now i have made them my exclusive set for my warforged barbarian whose name is pants and Truly, if anybody wants to invite me to a Vampire the Masquerade game, I promise to bring those beautiful dice with me. They're beautiful. Leah has a really great eye when it comes to curating her dice. And Greenleaf has dice for every price point. Handmade to beautiful HD dice. I can't rave about them enough, even though it is making me look a fool in this particular moment (laughs) to love them how much I do. (laughs) No, we we love a good theme. Uh, and if you love a good theme, you can find all of Leah's collections at greenleafgeek.com or on Twitter and Instagram at greenleafgeek. Willing and Fable listeners can use our exclusive coupon code when they shop. That's Fable, F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. And again, Leah, I can't thank you enough for uh, meeting me there when I said... I want vampire dice. I actually said that to her, and she really mm-hmm. came through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so before we dive into today's episode, a quick heads up. Our topic is part two of the infamous Jack the Ripper. We will be discussing numerous sensitive subjects, including violence, murder, and sexual crimes. Listener discretion is, as always, advised. We left off last week, having discussed... What Whitechapel was like in the 19th century. We also told you about the gruesome details of the infamous murders of Whitechapel, and we shared the lives of the canonical five Jack the Ripper victims. This week, we are going to dive into the aftermath of those crimes. To do that, we're going to start with the hunt for Jack. I'd like to start with a quote from Whitechapel Jack that will paint a picture of the capabilities of the police force at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. Quote, The term serial killer had not even been coined yet. Crime was rampant in Whitechapel, and the bulk of murders were carried out by street gangs or in the form of domestic violence. Even then, however, crimes referred to as ripping consisted of robberies, revenge killings, and random violence to keep the public fearing them. Forensic investigation was almost non-existent, save for medical investigations determining cause of death. Even results of autopsies were cause for disagreement between medical professionals and coroners. 
At the time, coroners were elected officials that sometimes had no medical background at all. Police could only hope to elicit confessions from murderers or catch the perpetrator in the act. End quote. Harry, you're our expert on true crime. How often when you're covering these stories do you encounter not only a lack of forensic ability, but I, I almost want to say forensic evidence getting in the way, almost in the mishandling of it? I, I'm not exactly sure th- how to ask what I mean, but it just I hear about so many cases that have just been bungled. They've been bungled. And in this case, it part of it was a lack of technology, but it's so painful with the technology in existence today to look back and kind of see the writing on the wall. Sure. So I, that's actually a, a really, really good question. And the thing we have to consider, um, I, I've i run to several stories where you just want to reach across the, you know, the, the pages of the book or into the documentary, just like, shake who whichever <laughs> officer is investigating um and and technology is one of those things where it's it's easy to blame in hindsight with our with our 2020 glasses here looking backwards um that you know oh well they should have checked for fingerprints it should have checked for that this time they didn't have that so instead all they have really the biggest tool in their toolkit is perception unclouded or clouded perception um and and it, what makes the Jack the Ripper case so important to talk about is the the perception issues that came here, right? That, that that were around this case still happen in true crime today. Now I'm being vague. I'll, I'll get to the point. The idea here is that most of these women were approached as less than dead. Uh, another streetwalker, another Whitechapel victim. Um, no real sincere effort, token efforts, especially as more and more crimes kept happening. They stepped up their investigation in big air quotes there. So that way they could you know, make a show to the star if they were actually doing something. When really vital clues were missed perceptions of the case were faulty um so it's you're unable to really come up with a a a tangible victim uh profile you're unable to come up with a tangible uh idea of who could be behind it there because you're still looking at this case through an, an entirely uh colored set of lenses there um and you see this all the time. The one one of the cases that this reminds me of um, is the Grim Sleeper, mm-hmm. where a number of young, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, sex workers that were people of color um, are being found in alleys and and uh, under dumpsters and and uh, beneath trash cans and trash bags, and it, it's literally just. There's not even an idea that there's one serial killer until thirty to forty in, or until you know, all the way into the investigation, they realize it's actually one person. They just wow. keep chalking it up to another day on the streets, another hard night, mm-hmm. uh, night, and 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 the uh, and, and the land of hard knocks. And so, I look at these cases, and there's not any one thing that immediately jumps out as like being the biggest fault, right? But <laughs> when it comes to collecting evidence, the biggest thing is sorting out what's important and what's not important. And when you're looking at the case through an entirely like stunted lens. That inability to make that – or the, the, the ability to make that decision of, of what's important and what's not important and what's uh, simply here but on accident and, and what's a vital clue would be distorted. And so there's not a forensic thing that I say, aha, well, if only they had solved, handled this one piece of evidence, the whole case would have been different. Really, if they had to come at it with the knowledge of serial killing, if they'd come at it with the knowledge of repeat offenders and uh, offender profiling mm-hmm. – 
then perhaps we might have our person. But a lot of the stuff in this case now that we have is stuff that that has been that been put together by by uh, armchair detectives going through paperwork and piecing it together with our hindsight and the benefit of our understanding, which is the biggest thing I think. I don't want to be too on the nose here, but to use a phrase that Tracy uses for me a lot when we're talking about everything, actually, um, <laughs> it's it's kind of death by a thousand cuts. It's not one big mistake. It's just lots of little mistakes over and over again. Well, the, and there's and there's so many. You're absolutely right. Um, and, and one of my favorite like tests of, to, to make sure I don't, I don't you know uh, uh, be too dismissive of a particular case. I love when I'm like if I'm ever knocking on someone's door. In the time of pandemic, doors are a thing of the past. Um, <laughs> Get rid of doors. We don't have them. <laughs> if you were to walk across the street right now and knock on your neighbor's door, and, they, and assuming they don't have glass, you have no human way of knowing that there is. What what's going on behind that door? Mm-hmm. There could be a person right on the other side with a gun, three inches away from you, with the separation of that door being the only thing that's there, and you would have no way of knowing. Do you feel stupid? No. You just had the perception at the time that this was a door. I knocked on it. No one's home, and walked away. I mean, Christ Himself could be behind the door, and just because you don't notice doesn't mean you're, you're an idiot. It just means that, based on the limited tools available that you had, um, the, the perception of the door and the fact that most people either answer or don't, you know, we make assumptions and we go, not thinking it's all this consequence, not thinking that the world hangs on this one decision. And I can't help but wonder if, uh, in law enforcement, um, they have a lot more information, but they're not omnipresent. Mm-hmm. They don't know about this missing clue or how close somebody was or which alley the person went down. You do the very best that you can and you hope that you catch the person. And in this case, you know, they weren't saints. These were appointed people. These were people who weren't specifically trained and not the best of the best when it came to law enforcement. These were – they were put there by their buddies, mm-hmm. uh, put there by their friends, and they were colored with the perspective of another Whitechapel woman that I – and like they did the best they could and recorded what they saw, but no one was going to lose any sleep. They didn't find who this person was, I imagine. Yeah, which is a great transition into the next part, which is about the police force. As with so many important documents, books, buildings, works of art, the files relating to the investigation into the Whitechapel murders were destroyed in the Blitz. The files that did survive, however, allowed a detailed view of investigative procedures in this era. What we learned is that it followed a similar pattern to modern detective and police work. The investigators conducted house-to-house inquiries in Whitechapel, they collected and examined what passed for forensic evidence, and they traced and examined suspects. During the hunt for Jack the Ripper, over 2,000 people were interviewed, upwards of 300 were investigated, and 80 people were detained. Wow! How have I never heard that fact before? Right? Because they like to paint it as people not trying, but I think they really did try the best they could at the time, for the most part. And this would have been something entirely new. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can't stress enough, like, the 60s was when we were introduced to the idea of a serial murderer. That's, yes. I mean, like, that's what it's clinically defined. So we're looking at a cool 120-some or even even more than that because I'm bad at math and that's why I'm a streamer. Um, <laughs> that, that, like, that before this even basic awareness that some people can get a sexual thrill out of killing – 
these people are having to make this, you know, and investigate and interview and come to the same conclusion that took us, you know, hunt, you know, all this time to come up with. We have the benefit of profiling and watching a thousand crime shows. They didn't. Yeah. They didn't. And, and and it's it's almost impossible to really get a sense of scale um, when you're someone that far back and that close to it. It's true. Modern TV has made us all, especially myself, armchair experts. You know, when you sit back and you're like, why didn't you go into the next room or what have you as you're watching <laughs> these shows? Oh, it's don't you just look under the oven. It's it's clear there will be semen under there. Just just check, doofus. Like me, all the guys like an oven. Well, we've checked everywhere else in the house. All right, case is closed. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're over. Like, well, clearly they should have checked under the oven. It's the most obvious place in the house. I mean, yeah. come on. It's so <laughs> obvious. They showed us earlier how he put the thing under the oven. So why didn't they know it? <laughs> okay, but that's me and Great British Bake Off. Me, who never cooks or bakes, going, oh, my God, you didn't use a bon marie, you idiot. Oh, like- I know. M- me making my ramen, being like, oh, bold of them to use that flavor when they know Paul Hollywood doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so back to murder. So back to murder. The investigations in Whitechapel were initially conducted by the Metropolitan Police Whitechapel Division Criminal Investigation Department which was headed by Detective Inspector Edmund Reed. After the murder of Nichols, Detective Inspectors Frederick Aberline, Henry Moore, and Walter Andrews were sent from Central Office at Scotland Yard to assist. The City of London Police were involved under Detective Inspector James McWilliam after the Eddowes murder. The overall direction of the murder inquiries was hampered by the fact that the newly appointed head of the Central Investigation Department, Robert Anderson, was on leave in Switzerland between September 7th and October 6th, during the time when Chapman, Stride, and Eddowes were killed. This prompted Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren to appoint Chief Inspector Donald Swanson to coordinate the inquiry from Scotland Yard. So, as you can tell by the fact that I just threw approximately 50 names at you, information was getting lost at every step in the process. There was a ton of people coming in and out of this case, which I think was a really important part of why it was really difficult for them to solve it. Chain of custody is a huge thing. And the more hands you have on something, the more mouths you have talking, the more hands you have writing does not equal faster, more efficient results. It just becomes a confusing morass of, of everyone's opinions and thoughts and conjectures observations, apocryphal secondhand reports. And it just it, it, in police work, a lack of singular vision can be devastating. And in this case, it's, it sounds exactly like what it was, to a degree. This is why I aspire to have no hands, no mouth, and be a non-corporeal form. Excellent. We love that for you. <laughs> it reminds me of NIT, we always say, what one software developer can do in one month, three software developers can do in six months. Oh, no. (laughs) So they had all of these suspects. Were they talking to them? Were they actually checking for alibis like you would today? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So a surviving note from Major Henry Smith, who was the acting commissioner of the city police, indicates that the alibis of local butchers and slaughterers was investigated, with the result that they were eliminated from the inquiry. Approximately 76 butchers and slaughterers were visited, and the inquiry encompassed all of the employees from the previous six months. They did their due diligence, at least. 
I can only hope the inspector was like, tell it to me straight, Angus. Where's the beef? (laughs) (laughs) Is that Arby's? Where's the beef? I think it's Wendy's, isn't it? No, wait. Arby's is we have the meats, which would also be something you don't want to hear a, a, a suspect say. Um, they call me Arby's because I got the meats. <laughs> well, I'm going to write that down in my little notebook. I'm just gonna, you mind if I take your word for word? You got the meats? Okay, we'll see mm-hmm. you in court. Great, you're great. Yep, your court date is set for one week from today. <laughs> the We Got the Meats Killer premiering now on, 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 on Hallmark. Oxygen. Or Lifetime, yeah. <laughs> No, I like Hallmark. Hallmark movies always end with a kiss. The whole Hallmark movie, you're just trying to get to one singular kiss. This murder mystery has to be on Hallmark. <laughs> That's what the Jack the Ripper case needed. A good old smooch, dude. Mm-hmm. I've said it once. I've said it twice. This case is missing a big old kiss. So in August, it was suggested that a reward be offered for the capture of the murder of Whitechapel. But the Home Secretary, Sir Henry Matthews, refused point-blank to do so, much to the criticism of many. However, after Catherine Eddowes was killed in London, the London police force was added and almost immediately they offered a reward, although we now know that it was ultimately a fruitless effort. In September of 1888, a group of volunteer citizens in London's East End formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. They patrolled the streets looking for suspicious characters, and partly because of dissatisfaction with the failure of the police to apprehend the perpetrator, and also because some members were concerned that the murders were affecting business in the area. The committee petitioned the government to raise a reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer. They offered their own reward of £50, which is £6,541 today. This was for information leading to his capture, and they hired private detectives to question witnesses independently. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You always hear the narrative along with this story that, you know, no one came forward because snitches get stitches. But frankly, I'm surprised people didn't come out in droves for that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, first off, what stood out to me were the private detectives. Um, Pinkertons back in the day, um, they're the ones who caught H.H. Holmes. Private detectives are no joke back then. Um, they're essentially super cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say I, I, if I was a criminal in Victorian era London, um, I would be more scared of, of private investigators than I would be of actual cops. Because um, an actual cop will just hit you with this billy club and then also lecture you on manners. Um, <laughs> Fair. While a private investigator will take you up in the back alley and ruffle you up a little bit your feathers. And they'll be able to find you like 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 man tracker. Be able to just locate you immediately. I'm stunned that the private investigators didn't find anything because they had a whole bunch of tools at their disposal. And they really aren't accountable to anybody. So yeah. I... That to me stands out. It speaks out. to how hard it was to solve this case, I think. Or either how hard it was to solve the case or how how badly the police messed up what little evidence there was. Well, <sighs> that's why cases where killers, serial killers, murder people that are otherwise unattached to their lives go on so much longer. Because mm-hmm. it's easier to find the husband that killed the wife or the the other husband that killed the other wife <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 or the butler you know one of the hardest one of the, the hardest kinds of murder are the ones where a stranger is is, is killed uh, or the killing of a stranger because you just immediately lose that whole component of ready suspects so do you want to hear about some dogs yes Who let the dogs out 
Well, I'll tell you who let the dogs out. The Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Charles Warren, conducted trials in a London park to test the efficacy of canine detectives. This also ultimately proved to be ineffective at catching the killer. You can't tell me that Basil, the gray mouse detective, was not involved in that Unfortunately, he was busy. (sighs) I just love the idea they're calling them canine detectives even back then. I'm sorry. Canonically speaking, I'm just going to cite my own self as a source for this one. Those dogs were wearing little hats and they had little little cloaks (laughs) and they had little dog pipes. Um... And it wasn't that they weren't affected. They were able to sniff stuff. They just they just couldn't get the dogs to shut up. They were well, I I propose that indeed it could perhaps be a Wester Terrier. The Wester Terriers were like, that's bloody nonsense. That's racist against Scottish Hawk. It can't be. I propose and that is in fact a London basset hound. I think that's a bird of rubbish. <laughs> these dogs like arguing with each other. I can now confirm without a doubt that Harry tells the best bedtime stories. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I would stake my life on that fact. Mm-hmm. It's the entire cast of Lady and the Tramp, but they're all hunting for Jack the, Jack the Ripper. They well, can't stop arguing. The sequel no one asked for, but we do need. the real tramp was the the jack the rippers we were hunting all along (laughs) disney hire me or sue me it's it's pretty much a coin flip these days so (laughs) so the dundee evening telegraph published a summary of all of this activity in its edition on wednesday october 3rd 1888 Excitement regarding the Whitechapel murders continues through London generally, and especially in the neighborhood more immediately affected. Unhappily, the mystery which enshrouds the personality and motives of the perpetrator or perpetrators of the crimes is as dense as ever. The fact superimposes upon the excitement a strong feeling of irritation and distrust as to the capacity of the police for the task with which they have to deal. Both in the press and at local meetings, this impatient finds expression in censure, suggestion, and offers of assistance in various shapes. If they do nothing else, the money and services placed at the disposal of the authorities testify to the depth and genuineness of the indignation and horror which the butcheries have aroused in all classes. Beautiful. 10 out of 10. (sighs) Exceptional. Seven Earl Grey bags. Out of seven. Fantastic job, Rowan. I like that measuring mm-hmm. system. Please don't hate me, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, everyone who currently speaks with the tra- transatlantic accent, all those transatlantic accent <laughs> How folks. How dare you, madam? <laughs> just like, just, just calling in like your, your dinner order. I'll take exactly six chicken nuggets with a side of sweet and sour sauce. You heard it here, folks. Delivered to my address. But I almost said my address. We're, we're going to stop that meme. Oh. We're going to stop that joke. You can just edit that one right on out because I just about did the address in transatlantic voice. So That would anyway. have been really funny. <laughs> <laughs> then Vampire Rowan would know where to get me. <laughs> one, two, three, John Doe Street. <laughs> just imagine a transatlantic vampire like i want to suck your blood tonight all new <laughs> there's no way all the other vampires would be like yeah his girl friday we're taking that one out like no way in hell <laughs> let's say you and i make a sunday bloody sunday of it shall we So by the end of October, when Robert Anderson asked police surgeon Thomas Bond to give his opinion on the extent of the murderer's surgical skill and knowledge, 
according to my good friend Wikipedia. The opinion offered by Bond of the character of the Whitechapel murderer is the earliest surviving offender profile. Bond's assessment was based on his own examination of the most extensively mutilated victim and the post-mortem notes from the four previous canonical murders. He wrote, <clears throat> All five murders, no doubt, were committed by the same hand. In the first four, the throats appeared to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to the extensive mutilation, it is impossible to say in what direction that fatal cut was made. But arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes, closest to where the woman's head must have been lying. Hmm. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the woman must have been lying down when murdered, and in every case, the throat was first cut. Hmm. Bond was strongly opposed to the idea that the murderer possessed any kind of scientific or anatomical knowledge. Or even, quote, the technical knowledge of a butcher or a horse slaughterer. In his opinion, the killer must have been a man of solitary habits subjected to the periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, with the character of mutilations possibly indicating hypersexuality. Bond also stated that the homicidal impost may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. Which is the least helpful quote. I, it could be one of these things, but it's probably neither. As neither a <laughs> horse slaughterer, nor a butcher, nor a detective or forensic expert of any kind, I find it really difficult to believe that we're saying this guy had no knowledge of anatomy when he was pulling out kidneys and the uterus. Excuse me, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> I just love that horse slaughter is a role. Being like, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm, no, I'm no butcher. I'm a horse slaughterer. <laughs> Please, I have standards. <laughs> I'm still earning my hooves. One day I look, I look to get into butchery. <laughs> Again, I'm no expert. I'm just thinking that maybe, like, horse slaughter is alive to dead versus butcher is dead to wrapped up in a newspaper. Maybe? It sounds right to me, but Damn. I'm always a half step away from becoming a full vegetarian at any given moment, so I, I got nothing. Again, how could you not <laughs> pipe the fondant correctly? <laughs> I'm an expert on Great British Baking Show. <laughs> Ugh. So in addition to the contradictions and unreliability of contemporary accounts, attempts to identify the murderer are hampered by the lack of any surviving forensic evidence. DNA analysis on extant letters is inconclusive. The available material has been handled many times and is too contaminated to provide any meaningful results. Even in 1888, citizens of Whitechapel felt that the police were mishandling the investigation and even produced cartoons mocking the police as pursuing a blind man's bluff. The police's handling of the case only served to prove the growing belief that the organization was inept and mishandled. You can find those political cartoons to this day. They're funny. <laughs> they look exactly like political <laughs> cartoons from today. Mm -hmm. There's one of a po the police with blindfolds on and, and torches trying to <laughs> locate Jack the Ripper. That was one of the ones that I saw. 
Listen, the, the, the whole the whole true crime podcast of just ripping police investigators. There's no that's no new phenomena. They've been doing this since the 1800s. Just rip it in. Don't you know? I have a true crime uh, web cartoon on uh, <laughs> on the star. I don't know if you I don't know if you ever seen it before. I'd like to thank our sponsor, um, Old Whittle Whittled Hippo Teeth Dice for sponsoring my political cartoon. Um, <laughs> I think political cartoons from history are such a helpful look at the time period because when people are frustrated and when things are scary, they go to humor. And that's one of the reasons why listeners and readers can become so offended about comedy or stand-up or these political cartoons because they're based in so much truth and it's a way mm-hmm. of transforming what really hurts and what really sucks about life into something that you can laugh at because you have to. Oh, yeah. It's that gallows humor where you just have to laugh to stay sane when you look in the face of just just pretty much the, the, either the state of our world or back then the, what the, the, would have been the, the state of their world. It's mm-hmm. just, you know – <laughs> that and, and I feel like two of these cartoons criticizing and things like that are you know these are the ones who are supposed to catch them if they can't no one can I feel helpless so let's just rib them a little bit mm-hmm. it might be feel better <laughs> oh absolutely and there have been studies that show that um, generations who have been through more hardship tend to have a darker sense of humor so there's the famous bit at the beginning of uh, I believe it's singing in the rain where uh, one of the the characters just says like oh that she's so beautiful. I I think I'll kill myself. And like millennials think that's the funniest thing ever. It's really funny. And there are boomers who think that is horrifying. And it's there have been studies that show that millennials have a a darker sense of humor because of the time we grew up and the things we've experienced. Whereas uh, you know other generations don't. So all that to say is I'm not surprised that the inclination towards humor was there. We like to think of people in the past as inherently other than us and they're not they're just like us they needed to find something to make fun of just as much as we need to make fun of when our government messes things up i love that inherently snarky gallows humor singing in the rain actually all of it just 100 debbie reynolds is a gift so you were saying do you want to hear about one of the biggest snafus the police had? Yes. Okay, good. You didn't have a choice, but I'm glad you do. This involved a couple of bloodhounds named Burgo and Barnaby. The <laughs> dogs were touted as a new, innovative way of tracking criminals through scent. In spite of this, however, they never saw any investigative action, having been out of town when summoned by police on an unrelated case. The efforts truly dead-ended, however, when the dog's owner, Edwin Bro found out the police had no budget to pay for their services. On the morning that Mary Jane Kelly's body was discovered, officers waited for two hours outside of number 13 Miller's court without entering the premises and beginning the investigation. They were waiting for the dogs to arrive first to hopefully get a scent of who had been inside Kelly's room before investigators entered. Nobody told them that the dogs were no longer associated with the police force. They had also not been told that in the midst of harsher and harsher criticism of his handling of the case, Sir Charles Warren had put in his resignation the previous evening, November 8th. Wow. (laughs) 
we're not bringing the dogs until you pay us. Well, looks like you're bringing the dogs that it sounds mm-hmm. like. <laughs> but we're not going to tell anyone, so they're just going to wait for two hours outside the scene of the crime before doing anything. Jeez. <sighs> it is so wild to me that that would be just, just the, the, no, there's no cell phones, there's no radio, it's just, mm-hmm. well, you know. I guess we wait until someone figures out how to communicate with you. (laughs) So, should I dive into the Jack the Ripper letters? Yes, I am so excited about this part. This is something that anyone who knows about this case geeks out over. Yes, I was very excited to have been dealt this portion of the research. (laughs) (laughs) Who have been gifted (laughs) the Ripper letters. Numerous letters were sent to the police, papers, and other authorities during the autumn of the Whitechapel murders. And by numerous, I mean the October 20th, 1888 edition of the Illustrated Police News reported over 700 letters had been investigated by police. 700? Without the advantage of modern technology or forensics of any kind. Man, and this reminds me of Zodiac now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually. I, I hadn't really thought about that. It's almost exactly like Zodiac. It's it's proto-Zodiac. And I I, yeah, I know, too, with Zodiac, there's a huge question as to which ones were actual Zodiac letters, which ones were fake letters, which ones were attention-seeking letters. Um, And like so when you get letters like this, it, it's an, an immense clue, but also an immense like wrench in the works as well. It adds to the allure of serial killers. You love the idea. It's that same thing of when you see TV, every TV show that ever has cops on it who have to f- have the season finale arc of fighting the serial killer. The serial killer always taunts them because it's so much more fun to think of them as this criminal mastermind genius plotting behind the scenes that you're outsmarting than someone who's just on an angry rampage. Yeah. And that too, I think. I think the letters represent this. This only the, the classic cat and mouse game. Mm-hmm. But to us looking at this case, and, and when we're talking about the myth and, and what makes this case so legendary, uh, and what makes it have the staying power it does, I think letters are a huge piece of it. Um, because in some small way, the killer can still speak to us um, and can still, you know, offer up some clue um, as to either who he is or what kind of person they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think letters of any sort kind of capture the mind uh, and the attention because it's, it's one of those things where, oh, maybe I might uncover, you know, the secret behind this letter or I might see that, tw- that twist of a phrase there or the way that that T is crossed and be able to piece it together, um, which is really exciting. I, lo- I, love, I love a good lettered serial killer story. <laughs> For the investigators and the newspaper men who got these letters, it also makes them sort of the main character of the story for a moment you know it says i'm sending this to you for a Mm -hmm. reason this is for you and it is important that you read it and that drive cannot be ignored unfortunately for us most of these letters were discarded or lost during the bombings of world war ii or just simply because time happens Uh, There are still about 300 preserved at the Corporation of London Records Office because nearly all of the letters are presumed hoaxes. 
either written by people looking to stir up trouble, get in on the action, or newspapermen eager to keep the story interesting, we are only going to discuss three today. And these are the three letters that are most likely to be the writing of the actual Ripper, if any of them were at all. First, we're going to cover the Dear Boss letter, and I've pulled up a picture. Tracy, do you want to kind of give us an idea of what this looks like? Aside from the purple from the photocopy at the top, this is pretty color accurate. Okay, I will do my best, and then Harry can come in and philosophize about it. It is an old-timey document, so it's got that kind of yellowish color, and it's written in red ink. The handwriting is cursive. It's very neat, and it's slanted to the right, which to me makes it feel like it was written by a left hand just because I'm left-handed, but I could be wrong on that. It could just be I slant to the right and I'm right-handed, so I totally thought the opposite of you. (laughs) That's so funny. It could be true. I write uh, strangely for someone with a left hand. I don't curve my hand around like most people do. Um, It was written on September 25th, uh, 1888. You can see that at the top. And it's all one big block of text in the center of the page. Harry, what else you got to describe it? Yeah, so so one – I, the, the Zodiac comparison, I'm going to stick by it because it is, as you very rightly said, it is centered in the block, it is centered as a block in the middle of the page. Um, but it's, it's tilted kind of to the right. So it's almost have a weird centered rhombus shape. Uh, rhombus has been on my mind after teaching my third grader geometry. Um, it is, it is <laughs> rhombus shaped. Um, but it does stand out as being a very controlled, precise block of text. Um, it looks to me like it's written in blood, even though we all know that it's it's you know when blood you know dries it turns brown. It just it to me strikes as like a visceral. Mm-hmm. The letter looks wet. I don't know what about it it is, but it just looks gross and and it's very neat um, and clean looking, but also very cursed looking. It's got this dark red dripping wet ink. It looks like it's still drying. And I don't like that about this letter. (laughs) You're correct. It was written in red ink. That's not just the way the picture came out here. It definitely had bright red ink that's talked about fairly often. So this is called the Dear Boss Letter. And the Central News Agency received this on September 27th, 1888, the same day it was postmarked. Apparently, they were none too concerned about it because it stayed in their possession for two days before they turned it over to the Metropolitan Police. Like many letters that claimed to be from the Ripper, it was filled with spelling, grammar, and punctuation errors. This message gained notoriety after the murder of Catherine Eddowes on September 30th. In the letter, you'll hear the author mention clipping off the next victim's ears. Eddowes, as we said in the last episode, was found with one earlobe severed. So, Tracy, you're going to get in on the action now and read this letter for us. All right. I'm no Rowan or Harry, so you're going to have to deal with my American accent. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. 
I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Haha. <laughs> the next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for the jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, and I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly. Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha <laughs> I don't like this letter. And it's not for reasons that you might th think, um... I had an ex-girlfriend who would refuse to use LOL. She would say, LOLing is for is for uneducated fools. What? And ever since then, I still type out to this day, ha ha ha, or ha ha with no space. So this guy writing ha just like give me chills, dude. I hate that. Uh, two things. One, it sounds like your ex-girlfriend was a coward. Two, it, it <laughs> is wild. He did write out ha ha. And at, is in wild. the letter, the first ha-ha is underlined. Ooh. A little emphasis. Mm. A little ha-ha. <laughs> yeah, I should have read it that way. <laughs> also, we don't have to get into this right now, but ha-ha and LOL mean two totally different things. And mm -hmm. I will die on that hill. Ooh. Well, if you see if you see the vampire on your uh, in the TikTok feed, make sure you let her know that it's LOL gang or ha-ha horde. Um... <laughs> See, my Let us thing know where is, you stand. I don't actually use LOL, but not for any reason. And now, kind of petulantly, I want to start using LOL just because of what your ex-girlfriend said. <laughs> LOL is that sarcastic, like, lol. It's <laughs> it's kind of like an yeah, FML. Yeah. It's like, eh. It can be. I, just, I feel insulted when I get LOL. It's LMAO or nothing. Either yeah. it was allowed, either, either you're, or either the caboose is off, or I didn't do my job. It's what as is simple as that. LMAO? LMAO. Laughing my <laughs> arsehole off. Okay. <laughs> of the three notorious letters, this is arguably the most famous, as it was the first to use the name Jack the Ripper. This letter, as well as the next one I'm going to discuss, were published by the Metropolitan Police to be passed around to citizens who they hoped might identify the handwriting and assist the investigation. Nothing came of it, but the constant reprinting of them in newspapers certainly added to the Ripper's fame. Next, we're going to talk about the Saucy Jack postcard. On October 1st, 1888, the Central News Agency received a postcard that would come to be called the Saucy Jack Postcard. It mentions, quote, a double event in reference to the murders of Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride on the morning of September 30th. Harry, do you want to describe the postcard? And I'm so sorry, knowing what you said about the previous one. <laughs> 
so so this one looks as if um I'm, I'm, i it, it looks as if it's, it has sauce on it um my guess um maybe a delicious uh tikka masala sauce um that's i'm, I'm in a hungry state of mind maybe some sort of a, a light uh, uh, uh orangish chip sauce so it's got this the, the 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 writing itself looks as if it's um this the same sort of darker color it is blocked in the center look, leaning towards the right just like the other one is um but it has this weird smearing sauce. I mean, that's, that's the only thing I could I could describe it as. Is it looks like this? It's too it's too precise to be a stain. Um, but it it is this weird smearing picture. Um, I see a, a a smearing downward right in the top left quadrant, and then on the right, it looks as if there's an R or some sort of hook. Um, and coming and, and, and it's coming out of the best thing I could describe as being a ballpark Frank. Um, <laughs> it's in the <laughs> middle of this letter. To me, it looks like it's it's clearly designed to look like a blood stain, but it looks like when you press your hand. Uh, down, I was going to say, as someone who's left-handed who constantly smears things, if my pens are too too good, I have to use crappy oh. pens because if there's too much ink. As someone who is left-handed, I immediately noticed that palm shape. It looks like a left-handed palm smear, absolutely, with the curled pinky, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is – now that I've seen it, it is not a ballpark, Frank. It is a left hand uh, curled into a writing position. That's really interesting. The I would handwriting is also not as neat as the first one. No, and people talk about matching the handwriting or not matching the handwriting a fair amount. And I, again, I'm no expert, but they don't look the same to me. And I know how different my handwriting can look from one thing to the next. But if someone showed me these for half a second and said, are they the same writer? I would say no. No, the only thing I could think of is that the first one was really carefully written. And this looks like it could have been written really quickly on... An unstable surface. Well, too, the first one looks as if I mean, if we're to compare the two now, the second one looks like a post note that like anyone could leave. Like it's 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 in like a color pencil almost, or some sort of drawing pencil. The the first one that, that's the second one. The second one looks like it's it's a color pencil. The first one looks as if it is it is a quill dipped in ink. And carefully like put together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm looking at the eyes. The eyes don't look uh, that the eyes look very similar. Look at if you look at the eye, it is a a upside down shepherd's staff. It's like a J with a a spin around the top, and that is it looks the exact same um, down to the degree of the the. the of the, the the turn there, or I guess the degree of, of how much it tilts, as this letter does. It could have the same difference that, you know, I would have writing to someone I'm trying to impress versus a note I'm scribbling for myself. It's just a mm-hmm. little looser. Yeah. So part of me is is the difference of the medium, the difference of the paper types, the difference of writing with wet ink versus a color pencil or some sort of you know a non ink based writing utensil there. Um, and then another part of it is haste. It looks cramped. It looks busy. And maybe with the with the with the spill on, he wasn't going to use it at all. And he just decided that it looks cool after afterwards, and decided to use it to begin with as well. It's, I got the opposite vibe. I was like, I this guy wrote the postcard, and then he was like, smear. Here you go. Be scared. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Harry, we get it. You're a goth now, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> 
<laughs> Harry, will you read the letter for everyone? I will. And I'm going to read it as Saucy Jack. <clears throat> I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. <laughs> You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, but couldn't finish straight off. Had not got time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. <laughs> See, that's the real production value here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> completely off-tone letter reading. <laughs> it's a new service I'm starting. I'm proud to advertise Harry Horror's off-tone letter reading. Send me your tax forms. I'll read them to you as an exciting war story. Send me your, uh, your, your, your graduation <laughs> cards, and we'll make them sound like a funeral. Send them in now for the low, low cost of $5.99 a card. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, the police came out with their belief that journalist Tom Bulin created the Dear Boss and Saucy Jack writings. And in 1931, journalist Fred Best reportedly confessed to writing the two pieces in an effort to, quote, keep business alive. While there's no proof of either possibility, they are both likely. You'll note the ear details in both, used as a means to prove their authenticity, and some would argue that the woman's ear was harmed during facial mutilations rather than a purposeful act, which could mean that a newsman was using a small detail to craft a believable story. There's also plenty of debate about whether the postcard was created before or after the killings, after, meaning that a writer could easily have information from the scene, as scenes were not locked up in any way, similar to how they are now. As the letter was postmarked 24 hours after the killings, a reasonable time frame for either story, it's impossible to know. Modern forensic linguists have examined these two pieces of correspondence, as well as another that's called Moab and Midian, this writing announced a triple event and attributed the crimes to a religious motive. It's believed they all share the same author and that the author was a journalist eager to sensationalize an already valuable story. The last letter we're going to cover today is the From Hell letter. It was received by George Lusk, head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, on October 16, 1888, and it was postmarked from the previous day. Before I go any further, will one of you describe what this one looks like? It's got more spilling on it. Um, that's, I mean, first off, it is, it is not nearly as neat. Um, it is not a block of text. It runs from end to end. Um, the, the, the size of the font, it gets larger and then it goes and it gets cramped and then it gets larger again. Um, it, it, it is skewed right again. Mm -hmm. Um, I do see some, some almost like ink blotting that, or, or some, some, some lighter smudging and, and drop marks there. Um, but it, there's a, <laughs> there are some suspicious stains on this one that knowing what we're about to talk about make me think that this might be the real McCoy. It looks certainly very authentic. I agree. I completely agree. It's that same kind of tan paper, deep red brown writing, even less neat than the other two were. And So uh, much less neat. And the vertical strokes are long and have a lot of pressure behind them. 
yeah, the writing just looks really different. It's this is the least legible, and there's a bunch of little splatters on it that do look random compared to the other one that looked more like a palm print. And while it does skew to the right, the, to my eyes, it looks like this one goes up to the right and the other two went down to the right. I could see that. I could see that. That That's that's very evident. Everything has long tails and weird uh, branching letters there that kind of move across lines. And they mm-hmm. do have a weird upskew to them. I hate to say it, but if my handwriting looked like that, I would handwrite everything. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let your dreams be dreams, Ron. (laughs) This short bit of writing arrived in a small box that contained half of a human kidney preserved in alcohol. Catherine Eddowes' killer had removed her kidneys. Tracy, would you read this letter the way that it wants to be in proper English, and then can you read it again in the way that it's written? I know we talked about this a little bit. Yeah. Okay. From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, the other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Tracy, that was a very expertly done translation, because what does it actually say? Okay. I'm going to read it all phonetically for you guys. From hell, Mr. Lusk. Soar, I send you half the kidney. I took from one woman, preserved it for you, t'other piece I fried and ate. It was very neasy. I may send you the bloody kniff. That took it out, if only you wot, a will longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. It was Sean Connery, wasn't it? (laughs) All along. My God, we've broken this whole case wide open. (laughs) (laughs) Catch me if you can, Mr. Lusk. (laughs) Call Scotland Yard. We did it. I could send you a knife if you only wait a little longer. (laughs) This is awful. And it, it that the kidney, like that mark does to me feel like it is a letter with the kidney attached. It yeah. is it is a killer's letter. This one, unlike the others, has a ton of spelling mistakes. It is written by someone who has only heard words and never seen them written. The other ones were, mm. were written very accurately. Which if it's the it's the real letter, that to me points to meatpacker rather than mm-hmm. doctor. Dr. Thomas Openshaw examined the portion of kidney and determined it came from a woman about 45 who suffered from Bright's disease, or the failing of the kidneys due to heavy drinking. Catherine Eddowes, 46, like many Whitechapel residents, was known to drink quite heavily. Still, Lusk and the authorities believed this was a practical joke played by a local medical student who'd stolen the organ from a cadaver. I need to look up time periods because there was a long stretch of time where it was illegal to use a body for dissection for scientific purposes. So there was an entire group of people whose illegal job was to Dig up the recently dead and bring them to medical schools. 
and sell them for quite a lot of money. That's how we're getting mm-hmm. Birkin hair. <laughs> yeah, that's and in fact, you're. Yeah, I, I I do know that this is around the time H. H. Holmes is across the pond. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be eighteen ninety eight something to that effect it would be whenever the world's fair is like mm-hmm. 1890-esque um and, and so it is this this question of is it you know a, a, a cadaver digger is it somebody digging up bodies or is it someone who would have, have access to these rather rare medical supplements there or would it be the real deal a slaughterhouse worker who kept some of it behind but would it begs the question would keeping something in alcohol be common knowledge for a base level slaughterhouse person because mm. that to me is like medical grade knowledge right. seems obvious to us now but the information about it being preserved in alcohol tells me that either this killer was involved in the medical sciences or the person who sent this portion of kidney was involved in the medical sciences right. and I find them either plausible it, this letter just looks so different from the other two that it definitely sticks in my brain more than the others, even without the detail of the kidney. Mm-hmm. The Dear Boss, Saucy Jack, and From Hell letters, and the accompanying box, were all either lost or stolen from police files. In 1988, nearly a century later, the Dear Boss letter was anonymously returned. The current belief being that a cop stole it as a souvenir. Holy mackerel. I've heard a lot about in World War II stuff getting lost in the bombing of London and the bombing – and um, in particular, the Hinterkaifeck murders where um, a, fam- a German family was killed um, in this small German province. They cut off the heads of every member in the family took them to Nuremberg, Germany to do a psychic reading on them. Oh and God. then when Nuremberg was bombed, they lost all the heads. Oh, my God. Um, and most of the evidence in regarding that case, that's like the same thing here, although in this case, obviously, it's not the bombing. But th- it's just fascinating how either internal, like a cop taking as a souvenir, or external, like like war, can tangibly affect cases and true crime in ways that are, are, are you know once-in-a-lifetime sort of events. We're very lucky that they photographed the letters. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist now, many of them. Mm-hmm. On October 10th, Commissioner Sir Charles Warren said to the Home Office about the constant mail, quote, At present, I think the whole thing a hoax, but of course, we are bound to try and ascertain the writer in any case. Though not a letter. I would like to note one other instance of writing ascribed to Jack the Ripper. It, too, involves our friend Sir Charles Warren. Commissioner Warren made a particularly controversial decision following the September 30th double event. A piece of Catherine Eddowes' apron was found around the corner from her body, underneath graffiti written in chalk. The graffiti read... The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And Jews in this case is spelled J-U-W-E-S. In the East End, there was an incredibly high amount of bigoted hatred 
aimed at the Jewish community, and presumably Warren was eager to keep that writing from the prying eyes of locals who, in their fear, might harm innocent Jewish locals. But his choice upset people then, even now, because as conspiracy theorists will state, he was, quote, suppressing evidence with no real forensics at the time for pulling information from writing on the wall. I'm not thinking that there was that much to suppress. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I can see the argument for suppressing evidence, but at the same time, I do respect his fear that this could lead to greater harm to the community than evidence it would procure. Especially when there's a group of vigilantes actively mm-hmm. on the prowl. Mm-hmm. If you give people a victim group uh, and you have vigilantes running around as well, you're going to have folks playing judge, uh, judge, jury, and execution on the streets. And, you know, it, it, it makes it even worse, too, because if they were to kill, you know, uh, a Joe Blow on the street, if Jack really did stop, people would think, oh, well, we got him. Justice served. I mean, it could have had a ripple effect, a cascading mm-hmm. effect onward of, of you know, how this story is told, how other crimes are pursued. Um, I, I think it was the right judgment call, in my opinion. And the fact of the matter is, we still have no idea that this graffiti was written by our Jack the Ripper suspect. We have no reason to be assured that part of her apron was around the corner because the killer put it there to associate with this graffiti. We have Mm -hmm. no reason to think that he would have stopped to have written it necessarily at all. And while it is compelling, it's just not fact. But I think it, it is part of that larger story of writings from Jack the Ripper. Mm hmm. Tracy, this is my favorite part, and I'm I'm so excited. I've been waiting an episode and a half for this. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> all right, it's time to talk about who Jack the Ripper could possibly be. As we all know, the number of people suspected of being Jack the Ripper now runs well over 100. Some people are highly possible, while others are downright ridiculous. The Harry Horror Show for Jack the Ripper. The Harry Horror 2021. Show. Sean Connery. <laughs> just throwing names out left and right. Oh, sorry. Harry the Horror Show for Jack yeah, the Ripper. Yeah, yeah, well, well, Rowan the Vampire <laughs> Creature of the Podcast. <laughs> Many authors and documentarians have claimed that they have found without a doubt the real Jack the Ripper, but none have rendered the mystery solved. I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep interrupting you, but I have to tell you this one detail that I found Mm -hmm. last night while I was scrolling. There is an article from a rag mag that is in no way a credible source, but the article was saying that none of the women who Jack the Ripper killed were sex workers at all. They were just homeless women. And it was advocating that there was no possible way they could have engaged in sex work. That's not true at all. I was like, aw, your religious morality is having trouble with this, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Yeah. uh, Appreciate the sentiment of trying to cast the women in a better light. Um, Wrong way of doing it. Also, they don't need to be cast in a better light (laughs) on the sex work front. They need to be cast in a better light in history. 
Exactly. We need to acknowledge them more in history and destigmatize all forms of sex work. Yes. Exactly. It's 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 not they needing to be cast in a different light. It's it's the viewer needing to see things through a different lens. Mm. Uh. Yes. <laughs> mm. All right, you guys, we're going to talk about my top five suspects. You guys mm. have probably heard some of these names, and you might have names that I'm not going to talk about today, so we can discuss them at all. Listener, if you're shouting a name into the void and I don't cover it, uh, feel free to message us, but uh, also, sorry, these are my top suspects. <laughs> what going to do, listener? Huh? Better not pause. Better keep washing your dishes while you listen to this podcast because mm-hmm. we're going to get suspecty. And if you turn it <laughs> off, I suspect you are Jack the Ripper. Don't be so. suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> Our first suspect. Montague John Druitt. I probably said that wrong. He was born August 15th, 1857, and he died in early December of 1888 at 31 years old. His body was found floating in the River Thames. Can one of you describe what he looks like? Yes, I got this. Okay. In this photograph, this man who was wearing a neatly tailored suit is leaning his forehead on his hand almost like the sculpture the thinker like Mm. he's just his head is so heavy i imagine from the weight of all the philosophy and classic greek literature that he is consuming he seems to have a well-coiffed mustache and Mm -hmm. very neatly tidied eyebrows i can't see his feet because this is really just shoulders up, but I am assuming by his perfect middle part and slicked hair that he (laughs) is the kind of man whose shoes are always shined, his pants Mm -hmm. are always pressed. He just looks like this is the kind of photo that you would put in the newspaper for London's eligible bachelors. (laughs) Like This Mm -hmm. is his what he's broadcasting to the world. I just love the difference of perspective because the all, I would I missed all of that. What I get almost immediately is just Nikola Tesla listening to Dashboard Confessional. <gasps> yes, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yes, that is what like, he looks like for sure. <laughs> it's just just sad boy hours, right? It's just over here, you know, just just thinking about stuff, thinking just about thinking. electricity. Just thinking. <laughs> So, oh, man. Druitt is considered by some to be the most likely suspect in this case, even though there is very little actual evidence implicating him. As the son of a medical practitioner, Druitt fit the bill of being someone with medical knowledge as suspected by the police. After the memorandum of McNaughton, who investigated the Ripper killings, suspicion fell on Druitt. The McNaughton Memorandum was written in response to the Sun's incendiary reports that a Thomas Cutbush was Jack the Ripper. McNaughton published a memorandum in which he names three suspects. He says, A doctor of about 41 years of age and of fairly good family who disappeared at the time of the Miller's Court murder and whose body was found floating in the Thames on December 31st, i.e. seven weeks after said murder. The body was said to have been in the water for a month or more. From private information, I have little doubt but that his own family suspected this man of being the Whitechapel murderer. It was alleged that he was sexually insane. Sexually insane. That's what he said. 
I love the idea that sexually insane now would mean something totally different back then. Mm-hmm. Back then, it would be like it would be a compliment. I gotta tell you, it was sexually gnarly, dude. <laughs> now, back then, it was just a completely different. Back then, it was different like statement. You had one thought in your head, and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" A little bit sexually insane, huh? <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a reason that there are that, that it's just the top half of it that this picture doesn't show because he's probably not wearing anything else. He took a he took a Donald Duck in it glamour shot, which just <laughs> just shows how depraved he is. I thought you were gonna say that he was a centaur from the waist down, but I get really? it. I get where you went. Just it's only waist up. It could be anything. <laughs> <laughs> what? I was with Harry from start to finish there, and your one came in out of left <laughs> field with a centaur. A centaur. The second you pointed out that we couldn't see waist down, I was like, you're right, we can't. He was probably a horseman. <laughs> Investigators saw hoof prints across the scene, but couldn't, but couldn't place why. <laughs> oh my god, Tracy, save me from my own embarrassment. All right, so I should clarify that Druitt was actually 31 when he passed away, not 41, like claimed by McNaughton. The timing of Druitt's death and his medical knowledge seem to be the main reason for this accusation. Many experts believe Druitt was behind the murders as they are convinced that Jack the Ripper was a Whitechapel local and Druitt resided a few miles away from Whitechapel on the other side of the Thames. And he was also seen in the Whitechapel area around the time the Jack the Ripper murders happened. However, there really is no evidence beyond this of Druitt being the murderer. For all we know, he could have just fallen in the river drunk one night. Yeah. I've fallen in drunk and I can't get up. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. There's theories of that. There's theories that he died by suicide, but it's not, there is no real evidence that his family tossed him in the river because they decided he was Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Hmm. I could almost see his family tossing me and be like, take that, you sexually insane maniac. Ah, I said it was, we should split the turkey. And then, like, they threw him in and he was never seen from again. Until a month later when his body was found. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Never mind. (laughs) All right. Our next suspect is a very famous one that a lot of people have heard of. It is Aaron Kominsky. He was born September 11th, 1865, and he died March 24th, 1919 at 53 years old. From Natural Causes in Leavesden Asylum. Who would like to describe this fine gentleman? Hmm, he's, I would say, if I could, if I could open up the dictionary and a genie gave me the ability to, to make one word come to life, brooding would be th- what this guy looks like he's brooding he's got he's got mutton chops that go all the way from the meat rack down to the floor of the, the walk-in fridge he's got those big old mutton <laughs> chops he's has uh, it's it's a perfectly quaffed croissant quaffed set of hair uh that's that's but it's not puffed up it's not split down the middle it's to the side mm-hmm. he's got a a, a a roman nose and a, and a slight curl to his mustache but it's the eyes in this illustration the eyes are, are are to the left but they feel like they're 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 shooting knives at someone or their their eyes that, that feel like they're reminiscing about a crime scene gone by i could see this man in the dark um, with a knife, or I could see this man like yanking someone down to the to the pavement and just going nuts, and his expression not changing. 
Just the upper lip quivering. Assuming that this illustration is accurate and not just doing this poor man dirty, he is the kind of person that if I, as a woman, saw him walking around after hours, like, I would make sure my pepper spray was in my hands. Or I would, like, lock my car door. <laughs> He's much more serious looking than Druitt. Druitt was a pretty boy. He was like, a pretty boy. absolutely pretty boy energy and Kosminski has a much more serious, darker-looking expression. Maybe he was just tired on that day. Well, this is how photos were taken back then. I'm just making this all entirely up. That maybe he's just this is this this face is him being so tired of the guy sketching him because it's it's a, it's a sketch that it's this is like four hours in and he's just like. <sighs> He started out happy and smiling and thinking of like <laughs> Easter eggs, and now it's just wanting life to end, and and that's that that was preserved for posterity. So he looks very serious now. Mm-hmm. Kosminski was a Jewish and Polish hairdresser in Whitechapel and has been a suspect since the original investigation. He's even mentioned in the McNaughton memoranda, and his name was put forward by the two most senior officers on the case, Robert Anderson and Donald Swanson. In December of 1889, Kosminski was one of several people who were summoned to appear at the Guildhall Court in the City of London for having unmuzzled dogs on the public thoroughfare. However, this is the only mention of a criminal past for Kosminski. According to the Jack the Ripper website, by mid-1890, he was displaying symptoms of mental illness and was admitted to Mile End Old Town Workhouse on July 12, 1890. His stay on this occasion was a relatively short one, and he was discharged three days later on July 15, 1890. He was readmitted in early 1891, but by this time he was certified as insane, and on February 7, 1891, he was transferred to the Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum at Colney Hatch. However, he was listed as not a danger to others in his medical records. Being put in a workhouse or an asylum at that time is dark. It's dark. So he would spend just over three years at Colney Hatch Asylum, where he was described at various times as being extremely deluded and morose, rather difficult to deal with on account of the dominant character of his delusions, incoherent, apathetic, excitable, indolent but quiet, and clean in his habits, dull and vacant. All right, everyone, pick which descriptor is you. (laughs) Yeah, tag yourself. (laughs) <laughs> Dull and bacon all the way. Let's go. <laughs> I'm rather difficult to deal with on the account of the dominant character of my delusions. Mm, I like that one. <laughs> I will go with incoherent, apathetic, and excitable. <laughs> Something I want to point out here, um, it's important to note about people who have schizophrenia, which it sounds like he has. And schizophrenia can be categorized uh, a few different ways. There's uh, schizoid personality disorder, schizophrenia, it kind of is a gradient scale, and that's only with the most recent DSM listing is the way they, they go into that detail of it. The, the one thing I want to point out, because I do not want le- this to th- – I do not want this stigma to make people think that he is more likely to be a suspect. People who have and suffer with schizophrenia are not more likely to harm strangers. If they are more likely to harm anyone – it would be the people closest to them who are their caretakers, and that would be as a cause of, potentially as part of a, a delusion. On the whole, they are not violent. 
And that's something really important for people to understand that the fact that he was put into this asylum for delusions, in my opinion, does not in any way make him more likely to be Jack the Ripper. And on top of it, he was listed as not a danger to others, even in 1891 medical records. I am glad you're saying that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean if, if we're not careful, we immediately can hear that, and it's, oh, well, clearly guilty. Of course, right. it has to be. Um, when it, that's not the case at all. It very well could just be, you know, um, maybe a, a, a breakdown or you know, maybe a, a nervous episode, and the person, you know, was just released shortly thereafter or what have you. Then you're absolutely right. Um, in many, many cases there of, of you know, serial murder, of, of kidnapping, all those sorts of things, there is no really outstanding sort of diagnosis at all. It's mm-hmm. you don't need any sort of uh, a psychological diagnosis to act in a selfish way if you don't care about what other people feel. So on April nineteenth, eighteen ninety four, Aaron Kosminski was transferred to the Leavesden Asylum, where he would spend the remaining twenty five years of his life, <gasps> passing away on March twenty fourth, nineteen nineteen. That's a terrible yeah. way to live. It's it's not great, um, and you might have heard some big excitement around a shawl being found in 2007 that may link Kosminski to the murders, but the evidence as it stands today is inconclusive at best, which leaves the case unsolved. They thought they found a DNA marker that really narrowed the field of who it could be, and then they realized they the marker was a pretty generic one. You know what? I will apologize and admit I'm wrong if official evidence comes out, but even though I find this man's illustration very scary to look at, I'm gonna defend this man and say no he was not the killer Mm -hmm. and he lived a really dark life for 25 years oh yes so let's move on from him to suspect number three james maybrick born october 24th 1838 he passed away on may 11th 1889 at 50 years old it was suspected he died of arsenic poisoning from his wife Florence, who was arrested, convicted, and then released on re-examination. Oh! Mm-hmm. Rowan, would you like to describe James Maybrick? <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna try not to be judgy now that I know his wife poisoned him. Well, allegedly, <laughs> she was not <laughs> sentenced for it. Exactly. He's the kind of... Man, and this is only neck up that we're getting of him, and it's an illustration. He's got the kind of generic-looking, harmless face, downturned eyes, that if he were wearing and styling his hair any other way, I think he would just blend in. Mm -hmm. In this illustration, he has a rather large, rather shiny top hat, uh, which leads me to guess that there is at least some money in his life and he has a thick 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 long mustache that goes all the way down to the tips of his chin and he's otherwise pristinely shaven with a very high crisp collar he kind of he kind of looks like someone's uh older uncle i think for that reason i find him particularly unsettling Yes. He's the kind of person you could see either being the most affable, friendly guy or terrifyingly slitting someone's throat with psycho killer expression. Mhm. Yeah, I I totally agree. He has very paternal like like 
older grandpa dad like close male relative vibes and i don't like that either because mm-hmm. that's like like the weird uncle that you walk in and he's like fully nude he's like why it's my house and he's just like he's just just a weirdo there's some weird element to this guy his eyes are unsettling mm-hmm. um i bet he has a very kind expression but there's just something unsettling about him i bet he collects something weird not gross weird not like everyone in the world strange yeah mm-hmm. yeah so james maybrick was not a suspect during the hunt for jack the ripper It was only in 1992 when a diary was found that took credit for being the butcher of Whitechapel that suspicion fell on him. What? While there is no name in the diary, due to hints and references, it is is believed it belonged to Maybrick. Then, a year later in 1993, a pocket watch was found with the inscription of J. Maybrick scratched on the cover with the initials of all five victims. Below that was, I am Jack. The watch and inscriptions dated back to appropriate age for the murders. However, according to History UK, firstly questioned was the discovery of the diary, as the story changed from it being given to the owner by a friend to being handed down in his wife's family. What are your thoughts so far before I go on? (laughs) Here, Maria, take this, this treasured pocket watch. It says, I am Jack. That's our family's motto. I am Jack. Like, what are you talking about? This watch should be handed down to the family with the phrase, I am Jack on it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. And to me, that's we have to assume the first letter is valid. The first two letters are valid because the from hell letter does not sign Jack at all, Mm -hmm. Um, even though it's the most convincing, in my opinion. But we'd have to assume that the first two letters are, are correct. It could be a, like a telling middle finger there that he, he has his pocket watch right in his breast pocket. And it says the truth the detective is looking for. But alas, it's held close to heart where no one but him can see it. Mm-hmm. I could argue that a family having that would not want to share it for generations because of backlash on them if they're related to a world-famous serial killer. On the other hand, I could say those pieces of evidence are so on the nose, they sound like they were created for a movie. Like, I could go so many different Mm -hmm. ways with that. Yeah. It it does feel very on the nose, but with this paternal, like, older uncle thing, this is the uncle who thinks he knows everything and, like, mansplains just about anything to you. Oh, yeah. And so, like... I could almost see him be like, <laughs> they'll never know. It's just, I am Jack. <laughs> just, you know, th- th- like he seems like the kind of character based on his picture that would do that. Yeah. So the conundrum is that the diary itself is a genuine Victorian scrapbook, but 20 pages have been torn out. The handwriting style has been questioned due to it seeming more 20th century than, than Victorian, and the ink has been tested numerous times to no solid conclusion. However, the pocket watch was dated to be the appropriate time, and the scratches have not been proven to be done later. They're likely done during the Victorian time. So the pocket watch is considered a really interesting new piece of evidence, but the diary has kind of been mm, pushed aside as fake. And uh, ever since he passed away, rumors have abounded that Maybrick's wife found out that he was Jack the Ripper and poisoned him, but there really is no actual hard evidence to support that theory 
If we're going to get diaries in this story, I need diaries that are like Gentleman Jack level specific. Excuse me. We're never going to get Anne Anne Lister was a goddess for how specific her diaries were. (laughs) And I don't know if we'll ever get that again. (laughs) All I can see is like nowadays it's like Dexter where they find out that you know, they this guy's a serial killer and then someone gets revenge and kills the killer. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that would stand up in a court of law. If a spouse legitimately killed oh, a killer. I don't know. At that time, I feel like it would have stood up better than it does now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still homicide, but like I don't know, man. I feel like juries would be pretty sympathetic to that sort of thing. If you found out that you're husband killed anywhere from five to 11 women i don't know i i don't know that i would say that that woman was wrong (laughs) oh yeah i oh yeah we'll never know but let's move on to suspect number four walter sickert born may 31st 1860 died january 22nd 1942 Ooh, this photograph of yeah you want to describe this man yeah, um, man, he he looks like. Oh, I want to say he looks like a Hogwarts professor. <laughs> it's because he looks kind of like Gilderoy Lockhart. He does. He looks like Gilderoy Lockhart. Um, Gilderoy Lockhart is Jack the Ripper. Um, so so he has a his photo is crisp and very clear. Um, it is it is unlike any of these other ones, but where it, it feels like a, someone reenacting almost mm-hmm. like a modern photo taken with a filter. Um, he has a, a quaffed but messy hair, so it's 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 hair that looks like it's been it was put up put together, but it was graciously allowed to de- to kind of decline and to, to bless this mess. Um, full full shave, no beard, no mustache, um, kind of a furrowed look. Curious. He's inquisitive. And to me, it goes with the mastermind Jack perspective, where if this guy really is, you know, pulling the strings, this is a guy who's like, well, you're going to figure it out or not. And he's like looking at you with a question in his eye. That's how I see him. It's worth noting that the angle that this picture is taken is causing him to do the Kubrick stare. So Uh, it's taken slightly from above, which means he's his head is tilted down and he's looking up. So you get the three whites around the eyes rather than just two, which is immediately oh. unsettling to see someone look up through their eyebrows. And I, I wonder if this were just taken face on, if he would just look like a yeah, oh, man. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. I was a little unfair. I chose this picture because of the Kubrick stare. There are pictures of him when he was a little bit younger that are – he looks like a perfectly pleasant young man. <laughs> this one just – I had do to choose because it, it, it was just a little unsettling. So in the book, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, author Patricia Cornwell pinpointed artist Walter Richard Sickert as the real Jack the Ripper – and she even claimed to have found DNA evidence, which linked Sickert to at least one of the Jack the Ripper letters. Though the theory of Sickert being the murderer actually dates back to the 1970s. Sickert was born in Munich in 1860 and emigrated to London in 1869. He was known for painting sex workers, and some Ripperologists claim he painted clues and symbols about Jack the Ripper in his artwork. Some even suggest that the clues could only be known by the real Jack. It's also believed that Sickert was impotent after having several surgeries on his penis. 
experts have always suggested that Jack the Ripper may have had some kind of impotence problem, which is why he targeted sex workers so violently. However, other than the claims by Patricia Cornwell and author Stephen Knight, there is very little evidence to suggest Sickert was anything other than an artist inspired by morbid curiosity. We get it. He's goth. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. There, you, you, I, 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 I'm always fascinated um, with a good old-fashioned penile mutilation in my stories. Um, mm-hmm. It's... I, I could totally see that being a motivation. 1,000% see that being a motivation. I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't want to get too gross or whatever, but like the, like the pent up stuff and the feelings of inadequacy and all this, I could right. easily see him deciding to go into and going in with rage and with anger. Um, wow. What a take. Mm-hmm. What a what a what a what a clue! What a tantalizing piece of information that is. I read her book when I was probably way too young to be reading true crime. Honestly, I think I might have been eleven or twelve. <laughs> but <laughs> I do remember her theory, and and it's an interesting one. And if it's if it's not Sickert, I do see some kind of impotence being a driving factor for the reasons behind the murder some kind of anger towards women in that sense it's and it's one of those things too where uh, ed kemper comes to mind mm. um he had oh my God, sex yeah. and mom stuff put together he wasn't Ugh. impotent per se but emotionally he was impotent he didn't even describe himself as being emotionally impotent mm-hmm. he was particularly um, so- scary yeah. He was very gruesome. He was very gory. He was very violent. And so that to me almost shows that it, it, it could arguably be something to do with impotency because that that is a rage point. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not not all all you know impotent men are, are you know raging against the machine. The machine being the non functioning member. But I think if there's somebody committing very deeply sexual f- rage filled crimes. That's suspect enough for me, Mm -hmm. easily. All right, time for our last suspect. This is a very classic, famous one, Prince Albert Victor. Yes, yes, this is my favorite (laughs) suspect. He has a fun story. Born January 8th, 1864, died January 14th, 1892. Rowan, would you like to describe this portrait of (laughs) Prince Albert Victor? I love this theory so much for so many reasons. Okay, Prince Albert. In this, he has a shockingly narrow face in this photograph. Mm -hmm. Um, He, like many of the men before him in our episode, he is quaffed. His mustache, it's almost got that Salvador Dali curl, but it's not quite getting there. His hair has the, like, perfect kind of finger wave situation on the top. He's given some serious side eye. He is not looking at the camera. He is looking away. And even though this is only chest up, he is in full ceremonial military-style dress, bedecked in medals and rope. And honestly... And this is so unfair, but he looks like he was that child that was just so insufferable <laughs> because he was entitled, you know, that entitled mm-hmm. rich child who just, ugh. 
he looks like he's looking down his nose at you. And he has picture. quite a long nose and very, very perfect skin. And probably, probably he, he, he deserved to be punched at least once in the face if any of this theory is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, if any of these theories are true, then yeah, they all deserve to be punched. And you would punch him in the face and you go, why? Well, I can't quite say I deserved that. And like runs off mm. holding his nose like. Mommy. Mommy. It's happened again. She's really buttered my biscuit this time. Mumsy, mumsy. She's done it again. <laughs> so the theory of Prince Albert being behind the murders stems from the idea that it was all to cover up a royal secret. He was Queen Victoria's grandson, and his short life was already rocked with scandals. Rumors of homosexuality, which was then illegal, followed Albert for much of his adult life. Those rumors came to a head in 1889 when police closed down a male brothel and discovered one of the brothel's clients had connections to the prince, though it was never proven that the prince ever visited the place himself. Stephen Knight, in his book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, which they all have that same title. <laughs> in that book, it claims that Albert was the real Jack. Stephen Knight based this on two different theories. The first is that Albert contracted syphilis from a sex worker during a trip to the West Indies. As it does, the disease began to take its toll and eventually began to attack his brain, thus leaving him mentally unstable and angry enough to take out his revenge on sex workers in Whitechapel. The second theory is that the royal family was protecting their prince. They believed Albert fell in love with a woman in Whitechapel, and the two secretly married and had a child. The idea that a commoner, specifically a Catholic woman, would be the future queen and mother to the heir was unacceptable. So in this scenario, the killings were actually the work of agents of the royal family murdering anyone who had any knowledge of the prince's secret marriage or child. Wow. I love this theory so much. It has all of the trappings of like Princess Anastasia level um, royalty yeah. and intrigue. It's just, it's combining the most famous murderer with the highest class possible of society, putting it in a blender and going, this'll do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And frankly, if you're a prince, and you're a gay man. What is the point of being a prince if you can't bring the brothel to you? Oh, yeah, so true. He should be able to have his lovers in the the massive fucking gingerbread house that is Buckingham Palace. <laughs> that, you know, that famous palace that's so open to diversity of thought and behavior. I know, I know, I know you're right. I just want it for him. If he was a gay I man, I want that for him. We all want that for him, but unfortunately, there are some flaws in this theory, the biggest of which is that Prince Albert wasn't even in London during the time of the murders. That'll do it. There's really, <laughs> there's very little, if any, evidence to suggest that the royal family committed the crimes as a cover-up. According to All That's Interesting, the main source of the theory is a 1976 book by Stephen Knight, as we mentioned, titled Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Knight's book is based on the testimony of a man who claimed his grandmother was the girl who married Albert, incidentally making him the legitimate heir to the throne. Shut up! 
<laughs> Knight suggested there was a wide-reaching Masonic conspiracy to hide Shut these murders up! by pretending there was a deranged serial killer on the loose. Thus, the well-connected friends of the royal family and their Masonic brothers essentially invented Jack the Ripper. Would it be... <laughs> Would it be classic true crime if there were no Freemasons? Accused. It truly would not be. <laughs> if, listen, if if someone be the Mason, it best be the Masons. Um, <laughs> is it's, it's it's a plaque above my wall. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> words to live by. Shut up and go steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> No, no, you have to pay Nicolas Cage every time you make a reference then. You don't realize that? He's copyrighted the entire movie. Quick, people become our patrons. <laughs> Nick Cage could play Prince Albert in a movie. I'd believe that casting. I'd love it. I just, when Nick Cage genuinely tries, it's amazing. And when he doesn't, it's even better. I kind of like that he does the paycheck roles. It's, it's celebrities, one of us, you know, sometimes uh -huh. we all have to do stuff that we don't like because we need that money to buy our castles. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My castle is, is Popeye's two for ten. Um, his <laughs> castle is a real castle. All right, we all have our cross to bear and, and I, I'm, I'm glad he's like one of us. <laughs> <laughs> so do either of you have any theories I didn't mention that you like to think of for Jack the Ripper? I really like I, – I, I really like um, – <laughs> Let me get me. I like Walter Sickert, to be honest with mm -hmm. you. I really like him. Um, I, the royal cover up is cool. Uh, shades of Princess Diana, if you will. Yes. Right. Um, I want to see the crown, but the alternate history where Jack the Ripper's the real Jack the Ripper is like a, a, a royal hitman. Yeah. And he's got two corgis with him, and they're just like rolling around, and he's like, Sail Team Six going dark and like the the, the corgis like crawling through the, the pavement but in real life like i i really do like sickard for it everyone loves the jekyll and hyde of royalty and mm -hmm. it's too good yeah. to leave alone <laughs> it is it, it's one of those things where because we can't see into that world because it's it's closed off the mind does wonder and when the stakes are that high you just can't help but 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 guess and and, and speculate and think about it so if you're taking Walter Sickert as your guy, um, based okay. entirely off my own biases, because I am not a cop and I can have them if I want to, um, I'm not going to pick Montague John Druitt because he ended up in the river and I just get the feeling he was having a bad go of it. And I'm not yeah. going to pick Aaron Kosminski because, again, he was in an asylum for 25 years. So I choose creepy uncle James Maybrick, perhaps mostly because, again, we get that theatrical evidence. It's just mm -hmm. so exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> Team Maybrick, too. He's, he's my top person. But I also can see the Walter Sickert thing, but the, the goth in me recognizes the goth in him. And <laughs> Yes. <laughs> there was a theory for a minute that a woman was the killer. And I do not believe that at all. Yeah, no, I'm not buying that either. No. That would be an interesting twist, but I, I, I just can't, like, poison, sure. I mean, I, I hate that edge of, like, well, women are more likely to poison, but this just doesn't feel like it is. Women tend to have a really clear motive. Usually there's a, a good reason. Uh, Eileen Bornos had a pretty good reason for her crimes each time. These just don't feel motivated by anything other than brutality. 
qui bono who benefits um mm-hmm. i am i have i have done way too many true crime stories and i'm really scratching my head to find a female serial killer that got a sexual thrill out of killing i can't really oh, think I of anyone yeah i can't think of a single one um there's probably someone who's like screaming at the, at the I podcast and i actually can't hear you um we we've record put recorders in all of your phones so <laughs> please be nice and just send me a, a tasteful comment of who this person might be i would love to do a story on that woman uh should yeah. she be out there oh yes and harry since you are our expert <laughs> why do you think the myth of jack the ripper has survived for centuries I, I so this is one that really I, I sat on for a while and I had to think about it a little bit. And I think that it all comes down to one uh, turn of phrase. Before I get that, right? I mean, I guess in general, we, we see Jack the Ripper as this mystical character, not because what he did was particularly mystical or worth passing on. What happened during those early hours in Whitechapel or something that's really all too common once you've talked enough true crime. One person tore another person apart. The means and methodology changes from case to case, but brutality is a constant. So again, what makes Jack Thurper stand out? What makes him this mythical character? It is, I think, attributable to a core philosophy at the heart of true crime itself. He could be anyone, but has to be someone. It's simple, sure, but 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 the mind races at the possibility. Who exactly is he? He could be this figure or, or, or that. He becomes ephemeral, a man of many faces, but none at all. A man like that is capable of anything at any time. Our, our, our deepest fears, our wildest thoughts uh, get painted on him. He's looming large on our cultural canvas. In reality, he was just a man coldly cutting and slashing and acting in violence and the quiet still hours and the grime and the smog of our human mess. He was someone, which means that in his myth, he was also a man with form and substance, with fears and weakness. There's the tantalizing idea of the truth that happened once and that is now lost to time. That's what makes his case so mythical. He straddles two realities each leg firmly planted in a desperate reality there, supported by bodies and blood and sensationalism. Could be anyone, but he has to be someone. I don't think I could have said it better myself. I, Absolutely I love not. that. I couldn't either. But, no, but it's true. I, even if you had given me a week and a half to write up my thoughts on what makes Jack the Ripper such an uh, impactful story, I don't think I could have gotten there. From here, I mean, it's why I asked Rowan last episode, is he just famous because he's famous? And I think you hit the nail on the head. I think he's famous because it's it's such a big mystery and it, and it was such an early mystery in someone entering that cat and mouse game that we talk about that that we find so morbidly tantalizing. It's It's the truth being out there. There's one set of circumstances that actually happened. And it's almost impossible for us to get there. It's almost impossible for us to find what that exact barcode of truth looks like. And that is, is frustrating and fascinating and riveting as, a, as like a human experience. Harry and I have talked about this on One Time on the Internet, but it is incredibly alluring to be able to look at horror that can in no way affect you. 
mm-hmm. know, this is centuries past. It's scary, but no matter what you read or how many times you read it, you're always safe from it. And I mm-hmm. think that that makes it an especially difficult story to put down because the further it is from you, the more you can kind of gild it and make mm-hmm. it that much scarier and heighten the stakes of every little detail even more. It's a, it's a, it's a puzzle box of a crime, right? We can, we can put the puzzle on the table. We could take a look at it. Ooh, this is fun. This is interesting. Oh, I wonder who it could be. You can't come out and get us or anything. We're just, we can walk away, get a drink, come back to the puzzle, take a look at it mm-hmm. from another angle and still feel like we're, we're part of some broader story, but shielded from it, safe from it. After all, it's just a myth, just a story. Mm-hmm. Can't hurt you at all. Harry, thank you for being our expert for our two-part yes. on Jack the Ripper. <laughs> this was such a treat. I have learned so much from you two. Um, and again, I don't know if any of you in the audience ever, ever went went to church and there was a big picture on the wall. This is all over. It's the tackiest thing ever. There was, a, there was only one set of footsteps in the sand. Because you carried me. In this case, there were two (laughs) sets of footsteps in the sand. Because Rowan and Tracy carried me. (laughs) I did not know where that metaphor was going. And you got there. (laughs) I I, I have to sometime. Or else it just gets edited out. (laughs) That's true. I have the power. (laughs) But in all seriousness, it it is such an honor. Such a treat. Um, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast. And so to be a part of it. Is me becoming a, a part of the myth itself, um, which is really neat. It's kind of cool. Yeah, baby. Welcome to the audio world. I get to hang out mm-hmm. with you all the time on Twitch. I we had to drag you kicking and screaming over here. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's not every day you get to do an interview with a vampire. I mean, you just call me Tom oh, Cruise. How now. long were you sitting on that? How long? About 35 seconds. <laughs> All right. Got a quicker wit than I do, that's for sure. So now that we've talked about the terrifying and the murderous and the evil and the dark and the scary, hey, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good. I'm really excited about my something good this week because I am running a TTRPG one-shot for some of my friends on Friday, uh, with Tracy's encouragement, I decided I'm going to start doing it monthly because I need more excuses to just casually game with my friends while we eat snacks and just hang out and catch up. So the game I'm running this month is called Masterpiece or Artful Dodgers, and it's about an art heist. Uh, players sneak into a new exhibition at a local museum, steal artwork, they create a forgery, and they have to get back out without being arrested. And I love a museum, and I love a heist film. So when I found this game on itch.io, I slammed the buy button so fast. Um, And I owe a huge thank you to Tracy and... Casey, who you guys know, and Tim, and a bunch of our other friends, because they were very enthusiastic about letting me run it for them. Uh, But I just wanted to shout it out in particular because the creator, her name is Michelle. She goes by F.S. Writes on Twitter. Um, She created this really 
simple, accessible, engaging game, she recently tweeted a suggestion for a cool, fast doodle mechanic that can be put into it that's really silly and fun, and she is an indie creator. So if that's something that interests you, uh, it's available as a name-your-own-price game on itch.io, so if you want to play it, please, you know, support artists when you can. And I'll report back mm-hmm. on how it goes because I'm DMing <laughs> it. And if if all my friends don't survive, that's on me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't wait. I cannot wait to play. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to give you, Tracy, some like extra museum glamour, a little bit of over-the-top fun. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> hey, Harry, tell me something good. Something good. I got to hang out with you two. This is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I, I I know I'm gushing, but like <laughs> I've learned a lot about my own process. I've learned about how to do podcasts. I now have people I can annoy when I want to make my own uh, oh, yes. recordings. Annoy um, us. We love so it. So I know it's cheesy. I know it's cliched. I know you're sitting here going, I'm driving in my car and I don't like this. I'm a podcast <laughs> listener and I like this guy being cheesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I really this this was my something good. Um, that was my something good for this week. Um, so thank you, thank mm, you for the yeah. absolute privilege. Thank you, and I have to say it, Harry showed up on our recording wearing a Willing and Fable shirt, and that is so darn cute and i also happen to be wearing my willing and fable shirt i'm the odd man out yeah harry and i are twinning and honestly it feels so good so next time we'll coordinate with you trace so you can please thank you all three of us wearing the same shirt at the same time listeners will be able to hear it they'll be able to hear the difference it's so corny it's as simple as that it is such a breathable (laughs) shirt i really do feel like it i it's a very soft shirt um the design is really incredible i feel like um i can i can speak with confidence wearing my (laughs) willing and fable gold logo t size large uh for for men who are large and in charge like myself um so i would encourage you uh, maybe to think about if you if you find your upper torso um is not draped and soft um multiple colored fabric um that you would consider um maybe you can get some life you're rich. spoiling us stop <laughs> i sell the shirt from the the social anxiety perspective of it's black no one can see when you stress sweat through it <laughs> buy our stuff <laughs> we get it you're goth <laughs> you put this shirt on and evanescence plays softly over oh, your ears as oh my if i could do it i would make it happen <laughs> hey tracy mm-hmm. tell me something good all right my something good is that for the first time since september i recently got to see my two nephews and it was so exciting because they are almost two and four years old so oh, they're growing loopers. up so they're growing up so quickly. Fellas. So my sister and my brother-in-law do their own something good with their sons, which is at the end of the day before bed, they each tell my nephews what they did that day that was good. And I got to see them do this when I was there over the weekend. And it was so lovely and such a smart way to encourage good behavior. And it was something their pediatrician recommended. And it's just, it was really cool to see them walk up to my nephew and say are you ready for something good before bed and he was so excited wanted to hear oh what he gosh. did good i want that as an adult person that's lovely I know. that's what that's after so he went cute. to bed my sister and i were like he gets to nap and have people tell him all the good things he does 
he's living the dream. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, you two, today, you did a really good job podcasting. I am so <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> you know, I kind of like this stuff. I'm going to go take a nap and eat a juice box now. We're mm-hmm. drinking juice Can you box. Eat the whole juice box? Can you just the whole thing. in one bite? That's why you have to shop organic when you go juice boxes because if you get hungry, <laughs> you, know, you don't want to be eating, you know, uh, uh, BPA plastic, dude. No, 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 no. Nothing, it's, it's not biodegradable. I can tell you that right now. Dude. <laughs> Harry, before we go, can you quickly tell everyone where they can find you one more time? We are so excited about your recently partnered Twitch show. Oh, yes. Recently, I have a little purple check mark, which means that... The Twitch Lords have decided I am worthy of a title. Um, He's worthy. But in all seriousness, uh, <laughs> twitch.tv forward slash the Harry Horror Show. The Harry Horror Show, not Harry the Horror Show. Um, I cannot guarantee if you Google that, you will not get um, something you don't want to see. I have mm-hmm. no idea. I When I Google search Harry the Horror Show, as we determined last time, it does bring up my Twitter, my Instagram, and the show on Twitch, which airs weekdays, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, um, 3 p.m. Shrek time. So definitely <laughs> pop in for Harry's show. You can almost always mm-hmm. find at least one of us in chat. We love what Harry does. He is our one true murder expert, and he's just a bang-up guy. He's a, he's a good human. We like him, Harry, and don't, you will too. Don't let her get into your head. Don't let it get into your head. You're all she right. She said You're I just was the fine. most bang up guy she's ever seen. She's just trying to mess wow. with you. She's just trying to mess what with you. What a compliment trade. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> smartest, smartest gal for for or smartest person for most. I already forgot what the compliment was. <laughs> you said I'm the smartest person you know. You cannot forget that. That is now integral to my personality. I forgot what you called me. Oh, I said you're a bang up guy. Oh, I, I knew it was like a very transatlantic, like, he's a real rootin' tootin' cowboy. Can I be the rootin' tootin' cowboy? <laughs> Since we're sure. passing around compliments. <laughs> I just of want course. rootin' tootin' cowboy. <laughs> All right, friends, with that, we have a rootin' tootin' cowboy, we have a bang-up guy, and we have the smartest person you know. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening. Remember, stories grow with the telling, so if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or telephone. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.